Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. It is not 50 degrees. What is supposed to be 80 degrees here today? This is winter in Texas. I was telling um, the first service that uh, it's funny because um, I'm I actually have to go back up to Wisconsin this next weekend to do a, a wedding. I think it's going to be the, one of the last weddings I'll have to do since moving down here. But it's been 20 below up there. February is the worst month to go up there, and so I'm having to unpack all of my my winter coats that I've never had to use here in Texas, and sweaters, and long underwear, and smart wool is the key for anything dealing with polar vortex. So just so you know, in case it all comes down here to Texas, smart wool is the key. Otherwise, enjoy your 80-degree weather while we have it. All right, get your Bibles out if you would, please. We've been doing a series, and we're almost done with it. We're getting ready to finish up next week. But we're doing the series around here that we're calling How to Pray, um, just kind of a simple guide for all of us normal people, right? Come on, come on, turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor that's for you. You're normal, so this series is for you. L- literally, turn to your neighbor, tell your neighbor, come on, there you go. Now you know how we do service around here. So what I've been trying to do during the series is kind of demystify this topic of prayer and, and by kind of going deeper into what we call as the Lord's Prayer. Look at this in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says, One day it happened that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I've been saying this that uh, um, really over the length of this series that when you think about those first disciples and you put yourself into their place, they had been watching Jesus do all this stuff, seeing miracles and seeing what he was doing. And they were realizing that how he was able to do what he was able to do was really because of his prayer life. And so they asked him this question, Lord, teach us how to do this. Teach us how to pray, how to engage, to see what you're, you're, you're seeing. And, and his response is the most famous prayer that we have. It's what we call now the Lord's Prayer. It's up here on the screen. Can we all say it here together? Say this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I've been saying this, that if you've grown up in the church or come to church any length of time, then the probability is that a lot of times this was brought into the liturgy of the churches that you have gone through. And so most of us, or a lot of us who grew up in church, know it, know it by heart. We can recite it from, from memory. But I think the mistake in all of that is that we can kind of look at that these are the exact words that we're supposed to pray instead of it being really what Jesus said, that I'm going to teach you how to do this. This is kind of a more of a prayer map for us versus the exact words that we are to say. And I've been saying the past four weeks that this prayer map can be broken down really into four parts. And kind of we've been using this acronym P-R-A-Y to describe those four parts, pause, rejoice, ask, and yield. These are the four sections to 
the Lord's Prayer. We've already gone through pause, rejoice, and ask. Last week we started the section on yield, and we're going to continue looking at this fourth idea of what it means to yield. And today's phrase is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, which, by the way, anything written by C.S. Lewis, get your hands on and read it. They're classic, classic, classic. But in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this, Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. (laughs) I think this is a great way of saying what's happening around us, because when you read your Bible, you discover very quickly where the Bible's very clear that we are at war. There is a spiritual battle. It's raging around every single one of us between the kingdom of God and the tyranny of a cruel insurgency. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Now, that name Satan literally simply means the enemy or the adversary. Um, Jesus describes Satan as the thief in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his purpose. That's his intent in every single one of our lives. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And so since there's no neutral ground any place here in the universe, as C.S. Lewis described, that means there can be no neutral people. Hello, everybody. That means there can be no neutral people. Every one of us have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. No one can be a conscientious objector in this battle. You're on one side or another. In light of this, the great reformer, Martin Luther, he described prayer this way. He said, prayer is a constant violent action of the spirit as it is lifted up to God, as a ship is driven upward against the power of the storm. Thus, we must all practice violence and remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. Satan is opposed to the church. The best thing we can do, therefore, is to put your fists together and pray. Put your fists together and pray, everybody. That really is the admonition, encouragement, and the challenge for every single one of us. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you've thought this way or maybe you heard people think this way. But I've heard so many people ask over the years, well, then why is it so important for us to pray? Because I think for so many people, prayer just feels like begging God, trying to get God to do what it is that we want. Please, 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 God, please do this. Please do that. So often I think that's what prayer can look like and sound like to way too many people, kind of this tone of, this ch- of a child begging for their parent to give them a treat. And we all know how nagging two-year-olds do that, right? A lot of times I think that's how we can think of what prayer is like. We're begging God to do something. And for other people, I think prayer can be almost like you're at a some sort of sporting event and you're just wishing like mad that they're going to score a goal before the end of the game so that your team can win. It's that type of um, attitude. But I think it's really important for us to understand that prayer is not a plea from the sidelines. Did you hear me? Prayer is not a plea from the sidelines. Prayer is the act by which we invade the playing field, where we get onto the playing field, where we join the team, actively shaping the outcome of the match, challenging and occasionally outplaying the aggressive opponent. That's the essence of what prayer is. The Bible is very clear that we are engaged in this vicious spiritual battle 
in which God's purposes, they're constantly being contested. And so the essence of prayer is where we join our wills with God's will to resist Satan's will. That's what happens every single time you pray, which is important. Then we pray what God's will is, that you're on his side. You're not being the counter to that, but you're, you know what God's will, and you're, you're using your will with God's will to then resist Satan's will, which is why prayer is our, one of our greatest weapons of defense as well as attack. James 4 verse 2 says, "'You desire, but you do not have, so you kill.'" You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Listen, everybody. There are wonderful blessings that will only be unlocked by your prayers. Did you hear me? There are wonderful blessings that God has for your family, for you individually, that will only be unlocked by your prayers. As well, there are terrible evils that will only be restrained by your prayers. We have to take a side. Prayer is taking a side. And so the three things you need to know in order to be effective with this kind of praying. Number one, you must know your enemy. If you're going to fight in the spiritual battle, then you've you got to know your enemy. First Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is the enemy that we face. He's looking for someone to devour. Someone in your family, something in your own life, some in, your, in, our, in our city, in our culture. That's, that is who our enemy is. Now, when we start talking about this, I'm, I'm very aware that when we start talking about Satan and demons and, and fallen angels and these apocalyptic battles of cosmic forces of light and darkness... I know for some of you, you're already kind of tuning me out, thinking that it's just kind of ridiculous, or, or the only frame of reference is that you're thinking it's more like a plot from a superhero Marvel movie that you watch in the theater, right? I think a lot of times that's kind of what we start thinking about when we start talking about these types of things, especially here in the West, because I think for the most part, we've replaced biblical cosmology with humanistic psychology and sociology and anthropology. And for the most part, every sin is attributed to a societal or a clinical issue. That's, I think, the culture in which we live in, and it affects us. It affects how we think, and for a lot of us, it disengages us in the battle. Because for all supposed sophistication that we have in our Western culture, our news cycles are still, they report the horrible atrocities that are happening across the world. People who rape children, people who imprison strangers, people who torture animals, people who drop sarin bombs on civilians. And the media, the media even describes these people as evil. And then away from all the public um, spotlights, I think when we just kind of look at our own selves, it's easy to kind of see the darkness in our own soul and the capacity, the horrifying capacity that we have in us to hurt and to hate and, and to abuse and to misuse others. There is a fascinating encounter at the beginning of the horror movie that I would never, ever, ever recommend. This is not a recommendation by a, a movie by whatever means. But there's an interesting um, conversation in the horror movie, the Silence of the Lambs, in which Clara Starling, who is this young FBI trainee, asks the cannibalistic serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, what happened to make him so twisted. Listen to what Hannibal says. He says, 
Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in a moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? It's interesting. This is, this is, a, you know, this is in, a, in our public uh, view of, again, good and evil. And there's, a, there's a, an interesting book called The Death of Satan and How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil that's written by a uh, liberal intellectual by the name of Andrew DeBonco. And he, he addresses Hannibal's question, and he said this. He says, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has become harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killings is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. It's an interesting commentary, I think, on our culture. At the kind of the end of World War II, a German pastor by the name of Helmut Tilecke, um, he delivered this poignant sermon in the German city of Stuttgart, just a little bit where I, around the area I, I lived when I, when I lived over there. And he applied this line in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. He applied that line to the atrocities of Gnosticism, of Nazism and the decimation of the European con, uh, continent through the, those years of the war. And listen to what he said. Again, this is at the end, the ending of World War II. He writes, Dear friends, in our time, we have had far too much contact with demonic powers. We have sensed and seen how men and whole movements have been corrupted and controlled by mysterious, abysmal powers, leading them where they have no intention of going. We observe all too often how an alien spirit can ride at people and change the very substance of men who before may have been quite decent and reasonable persons, drawing them to brutalities, delusion of power, and fits of madness of which they never appeared capable before. We sense how real and almost tangible are the evil spirits in the air, seeing an invisible hand passing an invisible cup of poison from nation to nation and throwing them into confusion. Isn't that interesting? This is a German pastor surrounded in a culture that we know historically. Uh, I mean, the atrocities that was being done by literally their brothers and sisters. All under this guise of deception. It's like that people couldn't see. They couldn't, they couldn't wake up to it until you know, at the end. And all of a sudden they were beginning to wake up and seeing what had been done. And recognizing, boy, this isn't just humanity's dealings. There are demonic powers that are working in people's lives. And all you have to do is read through the Gospels and you see it everywhere. I mean, literally, it's almost like every day Jesus is casting out demons when you read through the Gospels. The Apostle Paul, he says it this way in Ephesians 6 verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can 
take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul's saying it's not just, you're not just dealing with your coworkers. You're not just dealing with your mom and dad or your siblings or your, or your kids or, or the governments. You're, there, are, there are demonic principalities that are work in our world today. You can go all the way back into the Old Testament and see the same type of dialogue and dynamic that's happening. Daniel's a perfect example of this. We're brought into conversations and brought into the reality of angelic and demonic principles that are fighting each other. And so number one, you've got to know your enemy. You've got to know that you have an enemy to your soul who wants to kill, steal, and destroy everything around you. But it's not enough just to know your enemy. The second thing is that you must know your authority. You must know your authority. Because I think for most Christians, it's not so hard to, to really think about and recognize the reality of demonic principalities and powers that are working in our world today. But I think the problem is that so many Christians do not understand their own personal authority to contend against such dark forces and to actually win. Look at this picture up here on the screen. I put this up here because I just I think this is a is a it's it's a funny picture that we laugh at, but when you think about the reality of it, that this small fur ball of rodent is no match to a seven-ton elephant, right? It doesn't make sense. I think it's a good picture of a lot of times what happens to Christians. A lot of times that's a picture of how Christians are when they encounter the enemy, when we encounter Satan. Too many Christians, too many of us, we're timid in our prayers and we're terrified in our dealings with the enemy. And so we roll over and submit. We cower in fear because we don't really understand who we are in Jesus. We don't understand how highly favored we are and how powerful we actually are in this fight. See, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Hey, everybody, Jesus has given you authority. You're not just a victim in this world, in this battle. You're not, you're not just a pawn in this battle that's raging. You actually have authority in this. Jesus, Jesus we, we look at Scripture, you see how Jesus operated with that authority. And then he said, now I give you authority. You have been given. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have authority over the power of the enemy. And listen, everybody, that has enormous implications. Because when we pray, we don't just plead for mercy from the midst of the mess. When we pray, we're actually exercising authority far above and seated with Jesus in heavenly places is is what the Bible says. That's why we don't have to roll over and submit to Satan's schemes. We don't have to cower in fear like the elephant in that picture would do when he encountered a mouse. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King commissioned to rule and to reign by his side. And you've been given authority by Jesus himself over the power of the enemy. You have to know your authority. Now, I understand probably some of you are already starting to fight against me in your head, and you're beginning to think, okay, well, if I'm seated in heavenly places, if I'm really being trained to rule and to reign with him, if I've actually been entrusted with such incredible authority, then why don't I see more power? Why don't I see more miracles? Why is there still so much suffering? Why does the enemy still seem so much powerful than me? Come on. Can we be honest here? Can we have an honest conversation here this morning? I think most of us, we kind of get to that place where we start thinking, well, what's the, what's the problem? You know, where, where's the miss here? And obviously the first miss is that we're just passive. 
Most Christians are passive in this fight, and we don't take up our spiritual arms that actually engage in this battle until life just happens to us. But I think there's another dynamic to this as well, and I'm going to kind of illustrate it by this story. How many remember it happened last year where um, those 12 boys from Thailand were stuck in that cave? Do you remember that? It was all over the news last summer. you remember that? I want you to listen to this. On June 23rd, 2018, 12 members of a junior soccer team in northern Thailand decided to explore a cave with a 25-year-old coach. They were deep underground when a monsoon flooded the cave entrance. Terrified, they huddled together in complete darkness almost three miles into the cave, wondering if they would ever get out. Their plight hit the news cycles around the world. More than 900 police officers, 100 divers, and 2,000 soldiers gathered with the world's media at the mouth of the cave. But for nine days, no one could find the boys. The world watched, fearing the worst, but hoping for the best as a billion gallons of water were pumped out of the cave. On July 2nd, a diving team managed to get deep into the cave's network of tunnels, crawling, climbing, and swimming against the current with zero visibility. After more than six hours against diminishing odds, they discovered the boys alive, huddled together high on a shelf in a cavern called the Hidden City. Cold, scared, and starving, they had no idea how long they'd been lost, nor how many people were looking for them, praying for them. But they were saved. The watching world breathed a huge collective sigh of relief. Everyone anticipated an imminent happy ending on the following day's news. How difficult could it be to get 12 kids out of a cave? But their ordeal was far from over. Getting the boys out was going to be an arduous, dangerous process with tragic consequences, and it would take another eight days. For those watching and praying, the wait seemed like an age. For those inside, it must have felt like an eternity. And then on the 14th day, five days after they had been found, and one day before the evacuation plan was due to be triggered, one of the divers, a former Thai Navy SEAL, drowned while delivering oxygen tanks to the boys. If a professional diver had died, how could an untrained, malnourished children ever hope to escape alive? The very next day, The first of the boys were sedated, given oxygen, and slowly brought out of the cave. It was a five-hour journey, much of it underwater, a grueling process that had to be meticulously repeated for each boy over a three-day period. Having been lost since the 23rd of June and found since the second day of July, the last boys were finally rescued on the 10th of July, more than two weeks after entering the cave. It's an amazing current story, but listen, it is, it is a parable in action for all of us. Because when you think about it, the Bible teaches us that we are currently living in the days of hope. Symbolically, between the 2nd and the 10th of July, figuratively speaking. We've been found, but not yet rescued. Our salvation has undoubtedly begun... And we have great hope, but our captivity, our days in darkness are far from over. When you read the Old Testament, you see the beginning of the story. You see people crying and longing for God's salvation. Humanity has been trapped in that dark cavern and unable to see for themselves. They had absolutely no idea that heaven's armies and all of heaven's resources had been unleashed to save them. And so for humanity, they only had... Very little choice, but just to wait in that dark cavern of despair, helplessly hoping and praying for salvation, just like that Thai soccer team. 
But then the miracle happened. Jesus came. Our prayers, humanity's prayers were answered. Somehow we were found a light entered into the darkness. And that's all that we needed. Hope overwhelmed humanity. Love reached in from another world. We knew that we were saved. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. He was describing death of death, the cure for suffering, the remission of sin. In that single moment, we were found. Light entered into that dark cavern of our captivity. Hope dispelled all of our fears. We were saved by the sacrifice of another. You're following the analogy with me. And yet, here we are. We're still here, still waiting, still suffering, still anticipating the freedom to come. Think about those, that Thai soccer team. Because in those days, those eight days of waiting, think of what their emotions were. They had to have been filled with joy and anticipation when they saw the rescue team there and the anticipation of all the foods that they were hungering for and being able to be hugged by their parents and being able to sleep in a warm bed. That joy and anticipation had to have been there, but they must have also experienced the incredible frustration of waiting Waiting for eight days, deep distress over hearing the news of the death of one of those divers, and then the sheer terror of the thought of all that was yet to come. Apostle Paul, he actually describes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Listen to this. He writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first, 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 the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He's describing this period of time between the 2nd of July and the 10th of July. This is what we currently live in. We're eagerly waiting the full freedom of what Jesus came to set us free for. Yes, we've been rescued, but we still have to wait, which is why Jesus said in this waiting period of time, quote unquote, we, that's what we need to pray, deliver us from evil. We have to engage in, in this battle that we are in, the theologian N.T. Wright. He said it this way, to pray, deliver us from evil is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby to hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. See, the reality is we don't know how many hours or days or years we must hold the line within the dark caverns of life. But listen, everybody, we have every reason to hope. Every reason to hope. Jesus' cross means that we have been found and his resurrection assures us that someday soon we will be free. And so even though here in this waiting period, not all things make sense. And not everything that we're hoping for and praying for happens. We still hold that line because Jesus has come and has changed everything. Which is why we're not just victims in this fight. Which then brings me to the third point, And that is you must know how to fight. <laughs> 
Because we're in this middle period. We're in this waiting period. Jesus has come. We've been saved. But now we're, we're wrestling with these next eight days, figuratively speaking. And, uh, and, and that's really important for us to understand because even though Satan um, has been a vanquished foe and his demise is inevitable, the aggression, Scripture describes, the aggression of his deathly throes, they still seem terrifying to us. Revelation 12, verse 12 says, He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. That's how Satan is described. In this last period of time, he's trying to create as much destruction as possible, destroy as many people's lives as possible. That is his mission. The biblical scholar Church Lowe says it this way. He says, like a wounded and cornered animal, Satan thrashes around desperately with the aim of injuring as many of his enemies as possible before his own destruction. So the defeat of Satan does not mean the end of trouble for the church. To the contrary, it signals an escalation and intensification of opposition and persecution. But the end is in sight. And those who endure to the end shall be victorious, even if, in the meantime, they become victims. It's a, a perspective. If we're going to hold the line, if we're going to stand and fight in this, it's a perspective that we have to have. Because the reality is we've all prayed for loved ones to be healed, but not everyone has experienced healing. We've all prayed for friends to find freedom in Jesus, but not everyone has chosen that freedom. We've all prayed and prayed and prayed against injustices, but there are still atrocities happening all over the world every single day. There is not always a happy ending, and it's agony to lose such battles. But, listen everybody, we are assured that the ultimate victory has already been won. And that's where your faith gets anchored into, not just all these things that are happening and not just what feels like a failed prayer. It didn't happen. It didn't occur. No, we are to fight. We are to pray. God's given you authority, and that's why we stand. John Piper said it this way, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is a war, you cannot know what prayer is for. It's great perspective. And so there's three questions you need to ask in order to fight effectively, and I'm going to finish with this. The first question that you need to be able to ask is, what is the enemy's strategy against this person or place? What is the enemy's strategy against this person or place? Because remember, there's a battle going on, so what's his strategy here? In this particular situation, and to answer that question, you're going to need common sense, and we all have that, but you need to use it because so much of the devil's schemes are just obvious. Just open your eyes and see. See what he's doing. See how he's affecting your family. See how he's affecting your kids. Open your eyes to the spiritual realm around you. Remember, our fight's not against flesh and blood. And so there's this fight that's happening. So some of the things are just obvious. We just have to open our eyes. We have to see what's happening. And the second thing you're going to need is, is wisdom. Because here's the thing, everybody. Not all bad things that happen are necessarily demonic. The devil is not behind absolutely everything. And so we need to have wisdom to know the difference. And then we also have, need to have spiritual discernment because Satan can be a convincing liar. And so that's why we have to pray that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so we can see and understand what's actually happening in the spiritual realm so then we know what to do. But your baseline is always John 10.10. 10. The thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. That is his intent. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your parents. He wants to destroy your finances, your resources, your job. That is his intent. That is, his, that is what he is doing. That is, that is his intent, and he is relentless about it. But the second question we need to ask is what might God's better plan be for this person or this place? So not only is the devil working, but let me say, God is working. 
And God is greater. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So what is God's plan? Where is God in the mix of all of this? And to the answer to this, well, that's when you need to really know God's word. You need to know his promises. And you need to ask for discernment from the Holy Spirit specifically in your situation that you're encountering. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This is God's intent. This is his plan. This is what he's doing. This is promise for you and for me. Third John 1, 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may, all, may prosper in all things and be in health. This is your soul prospers. That's God's promise for you. That's his working. That's his will for you and for me. And there's a whole bunch of other promises. But that's why you need to know, your, know the word. You need to know what it says so you can stand on what God is trying to do in the middle of that. Which then brings me to the third question we have to always ask. And that is, what can I do? What can I now do, both prayerfully and practically, to thwart Satan's plan and to welcome God's better purposes into this person, place, or situation. You are not a pawn. You have a role to play. But remember, your prayers can open up wonderful things that God has, but it can also hold down what it is the devil is trying to do. We have a part to play in all of this. Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, so put on the full armor of God. Always know it's his armor, not yours. Don't try to do anything in your own strength. It's God's armor. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Hey, everybody, your struggle is not against your coworker. Your struggle is not against your boss. Your struggle is not against a family member. There are spiritual forces that are working in people's lives. Your struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all locations with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always um, keep on praying for the Lord's people. There's so much to this that we could spend series of going through these verses here. But I just want to draw a couple things here because most of the weapons that are in here are all defensive weapons, how we stand against the enemy's schemes and his attacks on our life. But there's one piece. There's one piece of military hardware that God says that you have in this spiritual fight that you are to take up. And it's not spears, it's not arrows, it's not battering rams, it's not tanks or missiles or AK-47. It's one thing, and that is the Word of God. God's Word is your number one weapon against things that are happening in the spiritual realm. When you look at Jesus' example, this is exactly what he used when the enemy came after him. Look at this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Just real quick, um, kind of a rabbit trail here for a second. Um, we were there at this very spot that Jesus went to, this place in the wilderness. It's called the Mount of Temptation. It's also called called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Um, when we went to Israel, this is one of those places that we went to. It's filled with incredible history and future prophecies that are to come here. Um, there's a, this is, this, you can't see it. It's such a wide perspective. It's hard to show. This little donkey appeared when I was taking a picture there. But it is, it is just vast. It is desolate. Far to the right is the city of Jericho, which we could see in the distance, and far to the left um, was the city of Jerusalem, and it was a clear day, so we could see both. 
Um, this is where David talks about in the valley of the shadow of death. This is that area that he talked about. This is where Jesus came and was tempted. It's that area that has the road to the road to Jericho where he talks about the good Samaritan there. It's where future prophecies are going to take place. The Isaiah describes that from Jericho, Jerusalem, that is the very path that, the, that Jesus will come back, making the valleys high and the mountains low, creating a pathway, kind of a red carpet entry into the city of Jerusalem. That's yet to come when he returns. It's all right here in in this place. So this is where Jesus comes, and he's tempted by the devil. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a, high, a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Notice, Jesus did what we're just talking about. He used the weapon of the word of God. Every time the devil tempted him, every time there was this attack from the enemy, he came back with this opposing truth from Scripture. This is why it's so imperative and life, it is life or death knowing Scripture, knowing the word of God. So you can declare, because what the enemy does, he speaks right here. This is where the battle rages is between your two ears. This is the battlefield. Your brain, your mind is where that battle rages. And if you don't take every thought captive, is what Scripture says, and counter it with the truth of Scripture, then we ultimately just become victims in this battle. There's one more that Paul taught, one more weapon that Paul talks about here that we're to use in this spiritual resistance, and that is standing your ground. Standing your ground. Ephesians 6 verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when you, the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Here's the thing about standing. There's kind of two aspects of it because standing means put your foot down, be immovable. Don't be shaken. Stay steady through all the changes that have be anchored. Let your faith be anchored to, to really the truth of Scripture because your emotions are going to go every place. Your thoughts are going to go every place. Life is going to happen to you. Stay anchored. Put your foot down. Be immovable. But as well, standing, standing firm also means walking in the opposite spirit. So every time you encounter offense, Standing firm against the enemy means giving forgiveness. We talked about that last week. Standing firm against the enemy. You, every time, you, every time you, you stand up against a bully, every time you stand up for integrity, you care for the poor, you practice civil disobedience for righteous things, every time you, you take a, a stance that defies the devil's insidious systems of control, every time you do this, you're standing firm against the enemy. Toward the end of the 20th century, there's, there's a Welsh pastor, Welsh pastor by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians called The Christian Warfare. And he said this, he says, The modern world, and especially the history of the present century, 
can only be understood in terms of the unusual activity of the devil and the principalities and powers of darkness. In a world of collapsing institution, moral chaos, and increasing violence, never was it more important to trace the hand of the prince of the power of the air, and then not only to learn how to wrestle with him and his forces, but also how to overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of a testimony. If we cannot discern the chief cause of our ills, how can we hope to cure them? Listen, everybody, I just feel like I need to remind you. There is a spiritual battle that's raging around you, and it is life or death. And it's raging around you 24-7. The devil is relentless. But through your prayers and through practical obedience, you have extraordinary authority to affect the outcome. Your words and your actions and your prayers are far more powerful than the devil ever wants you to know. And so I think we have to stir ourselves up. And so the worship team is going to come back up here, and they're going to lead us back into worship. But as they come up here, I want, we're going to do something here together to kind of stir these things up inside of us, to declare God's truth and his promises over our lives. You may be in situations where you're just beginning to realize, boy, I've been passive, and I haven't been standing firm. I've just been kind of letting life happen to me. I think where we first start, we've got to start, we gotta start countering the lies of the enemy with God's truth and who we actually are. And so if you would, I want you to stand to your feet, if you would, please. And we're just going to declare some of these truths of what God says about us. Come on, say this with me. Here's the first one. I am fully complete in Jesus called and greatly loved by God and highly favored. That's a promise for you. Say this next one. I have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's this promise for you. Here's another one. Say this out loud. I have the greater one living in me. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Here's another one. I have power over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means harm me. Here's another one. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am not my own. Here's one more. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. Here's another one you need to remember. I am forgiven of all my sins. Somebody say amen to that one. Aren't you grateful? Say this one loud. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. Here's another one. I am secure and confident because God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Here's another one. I have no lack, for my God supplies all of my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Here's another one. I can do all things through Christ Jesus. Here's another one. I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Two more. Here's one. I am more than a conqueror through Jesus who loves me. And here's one more. I am overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. Father, I pray for every single one of us, Father, that we would be stirred into this battle that you have for us. Lord, it's so easy just to be passive. And so, Father, as we worship, as we declare even these words, as we sing the words of these songs, Lord, we would declare the victory that you have for us, that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, that you have created a rescue for us, and you've given us authority in all these battles that rage around us. Father, stir us up here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Come on, everybody.
Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 930 and 1130. See you next time.